in life, we're often so concerned about being right. And we get into arguments with people because, and we judge people, you're not right, you're not doing this right, you're not doing that right. But the issue to God is not so much whether we're doing things correctly as whether whatever we're doing, we're doing in love. In one of Peter's letters, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. You can be making all kinds of mistakes. You can be fouling up all over the place. But if your motive for what you're doing is love, it, cover, it overcomes a lot of things because it's the heart of God. It's the heart of God. And then we look through verses 4 through 7. It talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13. And it doesn't define love. It tells you what love looks like when you see it. And that's the love that God has had for us. And so we're looking at this principle that if we're going to be proclaimers of the gospel, what has to motivate us is God's love for people. Not to get the church to grow, not because I want to be proud, feel good that I got some people saved this week. That's selfish. But it's because God cares about them and understands that without Christ, they're going to spend an eternity in hell separated from God. And that breaks God's heart. And if we have the heart of God in us, then we ought to have a heart that cares for the lost people. And one of the concerns I have for myself and for the church today is we don't care enough. We, we want to see people saved, but it doesn't break our hearts to see people that are lost, whereas it does God's. So it's that heart that we're looking for. And then we began to look last week, all right, if, 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 if that's what we need to have, and we look at ourselves and to be very honest, you know, I'm really not operating quite that way. I care for people, I like people, I want to see people saved, but I don't have that heart of God for people. The way I want to have that heart of God for people, what do we do? We just left lost? Without that? Well, obviously not. We saw several things that we could do. The first thing is this principle that Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 when he was sending them out in one stage to preach the gospel and to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cast out demons. He sent them forth and he said, freely you have received, freely give. And we looked at this principle that you cannot give something you haven't received. In fact, what you will give is what you've received, if you give it. And so people that have learned the letter of the law, people have learned the fear of God in the, in the wrong sense. People have learned that if you don't get saved, you're going to hell, which is the truth, but that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is if that's where you are, I'll do whatever it takes so you don't have to go there. I want to rescue you. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so, so, so if I've never received that kind of love from God then how am I going to give that kind of love? And we looked in 1 John chapter 4, we, we saw that principle where Jesus said, or Paul says, John says, one of them says, I know it's John. I got there eventually. I'm still... <laughs> well, beloved, verse, four, four, verse John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that lo- loveth knows God, number one, and, and I've got to remember the song. <laughs> and is born of God. Thank you. So you listened. <laughs> so there are two things. In order for people to give the love of God away, they have to be born of God. Because you have to have that love in you and that love only comes in you. This is God's kind of love. Not the world's kind of love which is based on you. I love you because there's something lovable about you or I love you because you do something good back for me because that's our instinct. Somebody loves you, somebody smiles at you, you smile back at them. Somebody does something good for you, you want to do something good for them. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's the world's kind of love. That's the Greek word is phileo. It's a brotherly love or affection. But the word when it talks about the love of God is the Greek word agape, which was a word that was very rarely used before the New Testament. And the Spirit of God, through those writers of the New Testament, chose that word that really didn't have much of a meaning. And the meaning was fleshed out with Jesus and what He did. Because Jesus told His disciples at the end, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Well, yeah, they did that already. No, 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 no. This is the love you're supposed to have. As I have loved you, love one another. There's a scene in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that is so powerful because there's a scene in there where Jesus is on his way carrying the cross up to, up to Golgotha and he stumbles and he looks over and he sees his mother and then he sees some of the others and this scene goes back to his commanding them to love one another as he loved them and then you go back to him carrying the cross. Wow. Wow. The kind of love he had 
on that cross, having been unjustly accused, illegally tried, mocked, mocked for being, called, being the Son of God, a crown of thorns being forced on his head, being stripped down and humiliated by the Roman soldiers, as they were very good at doing, beaten, uh, uh, scourged, carrying his cross up to the hill, nailed to that cross, hanging there dying. He looks up at God and says, Father, forgive them. Because they don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand this has to happen. That's the kind of love we're talking about. That's the kind of love that's the love of God. So I can't do that. You're right. You can't. You can't. And I can't. So God had to do something about that. So when you came to Christ, God took that love that He had for you and put that love in you. Romans 5.5 5. For the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So that love's in us. So we've re- it's in us, but the question is, have we received the fullness of what that means for us? And so we looked at this, the second principle. The first principle is you have to receive something before you can give it. And what you've received is what you'll give. So if you've received a legalistic love, a legalistic religion, that's what you'll give to people. But if you've received the grace of God, the love of God, that loves you no matter what you do, no matter where you go, that kind of love, that's what you'll give to other people. So it behooves us to learn what that love is like so that we can receive more of it. And the second thing we saw was that we can pray and ask God to increase that in our hearts. And I took you through some scriptures and gave you some scriptures out of Ephesians 1. That the eyes of your understanding may be opened, that you may see the hope of your calling that's in Christ Jesus. That's Paul praying for the church of Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, he prays for them that God would strengthen them by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. That being rooted and grounded in that love, they may come to know together with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and know the incredible extent of his love for them that they may be filled with all of his fullness read that you can pray that over yourself and ask God to open your eyes to see not to get the love you already have it in you but to open your eyes to receive it to see it to know it and the Holy Spirit's responsibility part of his responsibility in you is to do that but you have to ask him to do it you have to ask him to do it then the next thing we looked at was meditation not just reading the Word, but taking Scriptures and meditating on it and chewing it around. And I understand for some of us that's easier than others because we just, I'm, my mind just runs all, I meditate on things all the other time. And for some of you that may be hard to concentrate, but do it. Just keep at it. Just keep at it. Just keep at it. Because by doing so, you train your mind. And I ended up by telling you, you're all good at that anyway. Because if you can worry, you can meditate. Because worrying is meditating. That's all it is. And so all you got to do is learn, what do I do when I worry? I meditate. And if you're here on Wednesday nights, in a few weeks we're going to get to teaching you how to meditate. Some very practical things I'm going to give you to you can take home with you and do. And if you do this, that will be meditating. So that's where we left off last week. But there's another step we have to take. Having done all that, having prayed and asked God to, to, to open my eyes to see what this love is like that you've given to me, having begun to, to meditate on those scriptures and begin to allow them to grow in my heart and let the Spirit of God grow them in my heart. But there's a third step. There's another step we have to take. And that's the one we're going to look at this morning. And this is often where people f- fall short when it comes to faith. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we get people that hear the Word of God, that meditate on the Word of God, that study the Word of God, and their faith grows, but then, then it seems to hit a limit. And that's also true with growing in this love of God. And here's what the, here's what, um, the principle is. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy was a young man. He was a pastor at this time. Most likely they believe in Ephesus. And he was struggling, especially in this second letter. He was a young man, he was, he was, people would challenge his youth, they said, you're too young to be a pastor, you're too young to do this, you're too this. People all ha- always have an opinion that you're too something or you're not enough of this, and it's God that calls you, not people. You're too young, you're from the wrong side of the tracks, you're the wrong color, you're, the, you're too tall, you're too short, you're too old, you're too, whatever. There's always some reason the devil has to tell you, you can't do it, and you're right, you can't, but Christ in you can do it. 
Christ in you can do it. And Timothy was struggling with fear and timidity. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to him in the faith. And we're just going to read verse 6 and 7. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And here's the principle is this. There are things that God has put in us, gifts that God has put in us. It may be a gift in terms of ministry gift, whether it's not just preaching, but it may be a gift of serving. And there are many other ministry gifts that God puts in people because it's more than just standing behind a pulpit. Whatever God has put in your life, there are times you have to stir it up. Do you ever have, have a leftover, you know, like soup or something, and you put it in the refrigerator, you know, and you pull it out, you know, three or four days later to decide, you know, I think I'll have some of that soup, and you pull it out and you look at it, and all the vegetables have settled to the bottom. And what's on the top is the broth. And so, what do you do? You don't just skim the broth off and eat the broth, do you? You stir up... You have to do something. You have to fight. You can't stir up, you know, if it's tomato soup, you're not going to get, you know, lentil beans if you stir it up. It's only going to stir up what's in there, but you have to do something. I mean, Campbell's put the lentil beans in there and they put the, you know, whatever else in there. But if it sat there for a while, you've got to do something. You've got to stir it up. Well, stirring it up involves taking action, doing something. So this last step, which is often where people fall short, is that you've got to do something. You've got to take what you believe about God's love and then begin to give it away even though you don't feel it. In order to understand that, you've got to understand this principle. That love, and this, was, this transformed my life 30-some years ago. Because I was raised in a family, and I've told, I'm not going to go into details, where love was used as a tool. It wasn't something that was freely given. There were strings attached to everything. Every time somebody loves you, what's going to be required now? So you become defensive and you shut in. That does not bode well for a marriage. <laughs> and I married a young lady who lived in a home where there was love. And so I had trouble trusting her love for me and I had trouble giving real love to her because I had trouble trusting anybody. And so, so I didn't see it in me. And we went to some experience that had to do with training us for marriage. And one of the principles in there is what transformed my life. Love is a decision, not a feeling. Love is an act of your will, not an emotion. Otherwise, God would have no right to command us to love one another. Because He doesn't command emotions. He commands actions. And so the first thing you've got to understand is the love we're talking about is not a love based on... Oh, oh, she's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I just, and when I fell in love with her, that's what it was. I mean, I just she fell in love with her, and I still am. But in 48 years, there have been some days I got up. <laughs> and I got to guarantee you, there have been many days she got up, and it wasn't... Oh, he's the most handsome thing I've ever seen. Oh, oh. It's, where's the coffee? <laughs> where's my cup of coffee? <laughs> but you know what? The first time that happened, she didn't pack her bags and move out. I'm concerned for the young generation today. Because they're raised with an attitude that marriage succeeds based on what the other person's like. So if they don't meet my expectations, I go find another model that will meet my expectations. I trade this one in for another one. And the problem is you bring those same issues into the next marriage. Because if you're always thinking, I got the wrong person, because that's what Hollywood projects to us. Oh, you've got to get marry the right person. What about all those countries where you didn't even know the person before you got married? They were arranged marriages. Many of those were very successful. Why? Because you had to do it. <laughs> you had to. One thing I know is when we got married, my parents had been divorced. I, I vowed, come hell or high water, and there are times when it's helped like both of them came, we were not going to divorce. 
And until we got saved, because it was 10 years before we were saved, that's what held us together at times. I mean, you see what we have now. It wasn't always like this. It's taken work, and it still does. It takes work. But there's nothing of value in life that isn't worth working for. And, and, and your marriage is either going to be the closest thing to heaven on earth or the closest thing to hell, and not much in between. And it's up to you what you do with it. It's not, oh, that person or this me. It's what you do with it. And the key principle that turned this around for me was when I realized my love for her was not based on an emotion. Because I was looking for the emotion, and when it wasn't there, I'm questioning, I don't know if I can love her. It's an act of your will. And that's not just true for your spouse. It's true for people. It's an act of our will. So Paul tells Timothy, you stir it up. Don't wait for the emotion of this to come. You do something. You stir it up. Been a number of times in my walk with God, where especially I remember an incident early on. It's happened since then, but there's one clear incident. Early on in my walk with God, I don't know what was going on in our, in our family. I don't know what was going on in our marriage, but I was having a rough time. Have you ever had a rough time on a day? I mean, just, you know, I don't even know if I'm saved today. I don't, you know, I don't know if, you know, nothing looks good. And I was starting to have a pity party. I know I'm not the only one that's ever had one. Pity. I've found this. If you send out invitations to your pity party, God won't come. Let me tell you why. God doesn't feel sorry for you. You know why? He knows what He's done for you. Why should he feel sorry for somebody that he's made to be his child? You're a child of a king. You understand that? Do you understand that, that, that God lives in you? The, God's own spirit lives in you? God has prepared for you a calling and a destiny, a, a hope of a future. Do you understand what that is? It's an inheritance. Paul prays in Ephesians 1. I'm off on a different tangent, but that's okay. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that God would open the eyes to see the glory of inheritance that we have together with all the saints. Why would God feel sorry for us? He sees what He's done for you. He sees who He is in you. He sees what He has for you. He sees how much He loves you. Why would He ever feel sorry for you? Now the devil will come to your pity party because he's often the one that bought the hors d'oeuvres and put the, you know, brought the, all the decorations and all the things. And you can get other people to come to your pity party because they want you to come to their pity party also. But God won't come to it until you stop feeling sorry for yourself. King David is a great example of this. King David was called and anointed by God to be Saul's replacement as king. And the moment Saul figured out who it was, Saul turned all the armies of Israel against King David. Young boy, who'd, who'd saved Israel by slaying Goliath. And Saul turned all his armies to pursue him, and David would not do anything against the king. He just ran for his life. And he developed men around him that were outcasts, about 600 soldiers. And they were the outcasts. They were some of the criminals. They were outcasts of society. And David's done everything right in terms of, of, of an attitude towards God, an attitude towards King Saul. At one point, he has, in fact, in two points, he has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he won't touch him. At one point, he gets a little anxious, and he cuts the ro- part of his robe off, and then his heart convicted him. He says, I will not touch God's anointed. His soldiers wanted him to kill Saul. This is your opportunity. God's put him in your hands. And he says, no, that's not the way God does it. This is going to be done the right way. David, after all of that, doing everything right, resisting all that temptations, comes to a place where they go out to battle. It's a place, and they come back to where their camp is, a place called Ziklag. And when they come back, they discover that Saul's army has snuck in behind them and taken everything they have, including their wives and their children and everything they have. And David's soldiers have had it. They said, this is it. I can't do this anymore. And they turned against David. David's done everything right. Saul's continuing to prosper. And now his own soldiers, his own support team has turned against him. And David goes out, and I love this phrase. I love this phrase. This comes back to me over. David encouraged himself in the Lord. There was nobody there to encourage him. So David encouraged him. 
self in the Lord. Many of those psalms that are so helpful and encouraging when things are difficult, David wrote through by, out of his own experience. Pretty soon, through a series of events, everything that was stored came back. Within a matter of days, they called David to be king. Saul's dead, and David becomes king. He would not quit. And it came down to ultimately, he had to encourage him Self. He had to make a decision himself to do something. He had to stir up the gift that was in him and hold on to it himself. Let's go to James chapter 1. And there's a principle of faith here that I want to teach you. This is where many people fail. They'll, they'll say, but pastor, I've been studying, I've been reading the Word, I've been speaking the Word, I've been meditating the Word. That's wonderful. That's the first part. But there's another step. We're going to pick up in verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness, the overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, receive with meekness the implanted word, the word of God, which is able to save your souls. So we're talking about the word of God getting in us that's able to change us. And what we're talking about is the word of God getting into us about how much God loves us. For God so loved the world. All the scriptures I gave you last week that you can meditate on. The process is meditating, is getting that word in on. It's ingesting the word of God. It's receiving with meekness the implanted word. That's another way of saying meditating. So lay aside all flow, overflow of wickedness. Meditate or receive the, with meekness. That means don't argue with it. The implanted word which is able to save or change your soul. And for our purposes, this Word of God we've talked about meditating is able to make me more aware, allow the Spirit of God to make me more aware of an understanding of how much God loves me, the kind of love that God has for me, and therefore the kind of love that God has for you. Oh, but here's the key. Look at verse 22. But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So the principle principle that, that, that James teaches here is that if we just hear the Word, or we just meditate on the Word, and we don't act on what we hear or meditate, we end up deceiving ourselves. It's one thing when somebody else deceives you, it's another thing when you do it to yourself. And here's why it's a self-deception. Go to verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who observes his natural face and a mirror. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure many of you looked at yourself in the mirror this morning when you were getting ready, while you were shaving, hopefully, or while you were doing your hair, or whatever you were getting ready, you looked at a mirror, and what you saw looking back at you was exactly what you look like. But it's like somebody that looks himself in a mirror, observing his natural face in a mirror, verse 24, For if he observes himself and then goes away, he immediately begins to forget what kind of man he is. So he's using a mirror as an example, a symbol of the Word of God. In fact, over in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about about beholding our face in a mirror and seeing the glory of God. It increases as we continue to look at the glory of God. The glory of God in us continues to increase. In a natural mirror, the mirror that you have in your home, whatever you put in front of that mirror is what looks back at you. So if what put in front of your fear, mirror, the, the, the hair is all messed up, if that's what you put in front of the mirror, that's what you're going to see back. If you put 10 pounds on since last year, that's what's going to look back at you. A mirror tells you a mirror is an accurate reflection of what you put in front of it. But this word is a different kind of mirror. This mirror has the power to change what you put in front of it. This mirror has the power. The more you look into this word of liberty, the law of liberty, calls, James calls it, the more you look into what God has done for you and what God is like, what begins to do is that word begins to look back at you and change you into that image. Change you into that image. But what happens is we look into the word, it tells us who we are. God loves me. We come to church. God, 
Oh, last week was wonderful. I could see more. It was more the potential. You know, God loves me at a level I didn't realize before. And I'm beginning to see that. And maybe through the week you've spent some time meditating on some of those scriptures or trying to, and you're beginning to see a little more. You know, God really loves me. And then we just let that sit inside of us. What happens? It begins to fade away. And we go through life, and life's telling you everything else. And then we got to come back to church to get filled up on it again. The deception is this. When I look at myself in the mirror, when I look at something in the Word of God, and I get the emotion of, of it, oh, God loves me. Or I get inspired or challenged by something, and I leave inspired and challenged by it. The deception is I mistake the emotion for, having, for the change. You ever been praying or reading your word and something gets, you get convicted of something? I don't mean condemned, convicted. In here, you know, uh, this is wrong. God's, God's dealing with me about this. And the moment when you face it, there's a sense of relief. Lord, I confess it. I know it's wrong. Help me. There's a sense of relief. But if you then don't begin to try to make changes, what happens to that sense of relief? You've replaced the sense of relief for actual change. Because there's a, there is a relief when you face something. When you face the truth about something, there's a relief because now you understand what it is. There's hope for you, but people mistake that for being changed or for freedom. And that's the deception. That's how we deceive ourselves. We think by seeing it in the Word, that's the same as doing it, and that's the deception, how we deceive ourselves. If it, verse 23, if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looks at something. Verse 24, he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man will be blessed in what he does. The last line of verse 25 in the English Standard Version says, he will be blessed in his doing it. And that's what I want you to see. He will be blessed. New King James and the King James says, He will be blessed in what He does. I like the English Standard Version. It says, He will be blessed in the doing of it. Now go to chapter 2 and we'll see this principle developed a little more. Now James is talking about faith here. Verse 18. But some of you will say, he's talking earlier, he says, you know, look, if you say you love people, and some of your brothers come to you and say, look, I'm hungry, and you say, peace, blessings on you. God bless you. I pray for you. God bless you. And you have the means to meet their need and you don't? What kind of faith is that? And now he's going to explain this principle about faith. Verse 18. Some of you will say, you have faith, and I have works. But show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God. You do well. But even the demons believe that, and they tremble, which puts them ahead of most Christians. I, don't you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now stop here a second. Martin Luther had trouble with this. Because Martin Luther is the one that God revealed, again, or brought out of the Dark Ages, the basic principle of the New Testament, that we're saved by faith and faith alone. It's faith in what Christ has done and not by any of your works. We are, Ephesians 2 says, we are the workmanship of God. We're saved by grace and that's received through faith. And that's even not your own, but that's a gift from God. Even the faith that took to get saved was a gift from God. But we're saved unto good works, we, that we are His workmanship, saved unto for the purpose of good works. And what James is saying here is, is you, you can't, what he's saying is, you can see faith. I can't look into your heart, there's not a window there and a faith meter that goes up. They're in faith. But there are indications of faith and that's how we act and what we do. So the principle here, he's teaching that if you say you love people, I love your brother, be blessed, be warm, and you have the means to do something and you don't do it, 
How is that really love? Because love has to do something. Love is an action. And he's going to go on to explain this principle, which is a, a, a basic faith principle. And this is what I want to dwell on in the time we have left. And then I'm going to give you some, two examples. Verse 21. He's going to now give an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, James. Now I know you've missed it. Because the Bible calls Abraham the father of our faith, not the father of our works. Whoa, wait a minute here. Romans 4 is all about Abraham's faith and that God counted his faith as righteousness. And Abraham's faith was God made a promise that although your wife is barren and you're too old to have children, I'm going to make a promise to you, God said, that your wife is going to bear through you a child who is going to become, and you're going to become the father of many nations through this woman who has a barren womb. In other words, I, by just making a promise to you, I'm going to produce life in a womb that's dead. I'm going to produce life where there's no ability to produce life because I am life. And it's going to be by my promise, not by anything else. And Abraham didn't quite get it at first because he and, when nothing happened for a while, he and Sarah cooked up a scheme by which he was going to have relations with her slave, Hagar, and, and produce a son. And they did, and his name was Ishmael. And then they presented Ishmael to God and said, you, know, you said you wanted us to have a son. Well, it wasn't working, so we, we kind of helped you out. We added to your promise. We figured out what you wanted, and we, here we are. We've added our help. And God says, I won't do it that way. It's either my promise that you believe, or it's nothing. And Galatians 4 talks about these two covenants that God had with Abraham. So the whole New Testament makes clear that our salvation is by faith in Christ alone and nothing that we can do. What is James talking about here? Because now he's referring to Abraham. Well, he's talking about a story that's in Genesis 22. When God, Abraham has believed God, God has given him the son Isaac. And Isaac is a young man now, and Abraham speaks to him and says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love so dearly. And I want you to go to a place I'm going to tell you to, and I want you to offer him to me as a burnt sacrifice. Wow. 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 Get behind me, Satan. Boy, that can't be God. Because I know what God said. I know the destiny God said. This cannot be God. I know this is Satan. He's just trying to destroy this boy's life. Now, he knew God's voice enough because he spent enough time with it. He rose up early in the morning took several servants, saddled the donkeys with the, with, with the supplies they were going to need, and he and his son Isaac went for three days. I don't know what the conversation was like, but when he got to the mountain, he turned to his servants and he said, you wait here, and the lad and I will return. We're going to go worship God. And he's climbing the mountain, and the boy's doing inventory. He says, I see the wood, and I see the fire but I don't see the ram. There's something missing here. And Abraham's statement is God will provide himself the ram for the sacrifice. Gets all the way up there. There's no ram to be seen. And so he binds up Isaac, lays him on the altar, picks that knife up and is ready to come down. And as he's starting to come down, an angel speaks to him and says, Stop. Now I know now I know that you truly fear me and trust me. Now I know that I am first in your life, not that boy. Now I know, now I know the place I have in your life. And he turned and there was a ram caught in the thicket and he offered that ram. This is what James is referring to. Abraham, it says over in Hebrews in chapter 11, it said Abraham believed that if necessary... See, here's Abraham's situation. He's got two promises that are inconsistent. He's got the promise God made to him seven, 25 years before, or more than that now, probably 40, 50 years before, saying, through that boy, and he made clear that one, that boy, 
I'm going to raise up a nation. You're going to be the father of many nations through that boy. He's going to have children. They're going to have children. Many nations are going to come out of him. He hasn't been married yet. He has no children. And now the same God that says, it's only through him. That same God says, now I want you to bring him over here and I want you to put him to death. You see the inconsistency there? Now what you and I would do is try to, we try to resolve the inconsistency. We try to do what Satan tempted Eve in the garden to figure out what God really wants to do here so we could carry it out, maybe. But what does Abraham do? He goes through it and simply is going to obey God. Why? Because in Hebrews it says, he knew that if necessary... See, he never let go of the first promise. He never let go of that promise that through this boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. So it's God's job to figure out how that's going to happen. This is a lesson you need to learn. Once God's made a promise to you, and this word is full of them, it's God's job to figure out how. It's our job to believe Him. I had a teacher in Bible school that said, I love this example. He said, if God tells you to go out, takes you down to the, to the lake and tells you to walk out to the end of the pier and get on the boat that's there and go to the other side, your job is to walk down to the end of the pier and get on the boat. But what if there's no boat there? Here's what we do. We start walking down the pier and we're looking around to see where the boat could possibly be. I don't see a boat yet, so I better walk a little slower. I better give God time, like God needs time. I better give God time to get the boat there because I really don't see a boat just yet and I can't figure out how... I mean, if I saw a boat coming, I'd be good, but I don't see a boat coming, so I've got to kind of walk slowly because I can't... God, there's got to be a boat there and I don't see a boat. This is God we're talking about. He could make a boat appear like that. He could extend the pier. He could even have you walk on water because some have done that. In other words, the point's this. God's job is to produce the boat. Your job is to walk to the end of the pier. Abraham's on that mountain. His mind doesn't understand this. All he knows is the God that made that promise is true. It's up to God to figure out how to work this out. And he says, therefore, even if God's got to raise him from the dead, that's what God's going to do. And it was his faith in God in action. His faith of God in action that proved to him and to God his trust in God. And those, that revelation, that proving of your faith cannot happen unless there's a test. This is, why, this, is why, uh, this is why the Word of God says, uh, uh, Peter says, the testing of your faith, of the genuineness of your faith, is more precious than gold. Amen. Tested, proven faith. David, when, he was on the, when, he, when Goliath was making those threats, and everybody else was cowering in fear, David stands up and says, Who's that uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? Well, that bold talk got back to King Saul. He says, bring the boy here. And David says, I'll go slay him. So Saul takes his armor. Saul was seven feet tall. David was a little boy. Puts this on him. He's jangling around. He's trying to go out with the armor. And and David said, look, I can't use this stuff. Because he said, it's not tested for me. He said, when I was a shepherd for my father... A lion came and a bear came. And I slew them. And he picked up the thing he had tested, which was his slingshot. And he said, this is what I'm going to use. This has been tested before. I know, God, I know God's been tested. That's why he spoke that way in that situation. And Abraham, at that moment, all he knows is he can trust God. It's up to God how to figure this out. He's going to simply obey God. And at that moment, by that action, his faith matured. And here's the principle. Look at this next verse. Verse 22. You see that faith was working together with His works. And by His works, faith was made perfect. That word means complete. 
Faith without actions simply stays inside of you. It's an attitude of your heart. It's when you act on that faith that it bursts forth, that it becomes a reality. It's a releasing of it. It's like hatching it. It's releasing it by your actions. And many people miss it because they get built up in faith, listening to CDs, watching programs, speaking the Word, meditating the Word, and it builds up, but they're afraid to act. They're afraid to act because it might not work. And the very fear to act because it might not work is undermining their faith. It's saying, I really don't yet believe. But it's in the action, it's in the stepping out that you get rid of the doubt and the fear and that goes away and the faith can now be released. And there are many ways to do that. Sometimes it's just with our words. Somebody says, Bruce, how you, I know you've been struggling with that lady. How are you feeling today? Oh, pastor, you don't understand. I had a hard night and I'm really fighting this. Well, that's not releasing his faith, is it? He says, Pastor, I believe by the stripes of Jesus I've been healed. Amen. Say, well, that's a, that's a lying. No, it's not. It's a confession of faith. It's speaking out with your mouth what you believe in your heart. By the way, isn't that how you got saved? Doesn't Romans 10 says you believe in your heart and you say with your mouth. You believe something in here, but see, this is why it's not just enough to believe in Jesus. You've got to do something. You're going to take a step. A public confession, a confession of your faith, why it says in in Hebrews, hold fast to your confession, your public demonstration of your identification with Christ. Faith becomes a reality only as we, a reality in our life, only as we act on it, and that same principle is true of love. I want to read a statement to you that I read, and I'm going to give you quickly in the time we have left two examples. I was reading in a book of Oswald Chambers. He has a devotion called My Utmost for His Highest. Uh, But this was another book called The Moral Foundation of Life, which isn't important. But this statement, and I'm going to read it to you, and if you get something out of it, great. If you don't, don't worry about it. We're not meant to spend our lives in the domain of intellectual thinking. A Christian's thinking ought never to be in reflection, but in activities. A philosopher, philosopher says, I must isolate myself and think things out. Well, he's like a spider who spins his web and only catches flies. We come to write discernment in our activities. And this is the statement. Thinking is meant to regulate our doing. Thinking is meant to regulate our doing. Thinking is not an end in and of itself. Feeling is not an end in and of ourselves. Thinking is meant to regulate our activity. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 14, and there are several examples here, and I may have to just summarize them in the time we have left. Very familiar stories if you've been around very long. Matthew chapter 14. Jesus has gone up on the mountain to pray. He's finished ministering to them, ministering, and He's gone up and sent His disciples to go get in the boat and to go to the other side. Verse 25, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea, on the water. There's a terrible storm going on, by the way. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But most immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It's I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered and said, Well, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so He said, Come. And Peter When Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Stop a second. Did Peter believe when Jesus said, come, did Peter believe he could walk on water? It's not a trick question. Did he he believe it? How say you over here? Yeah. Now, wait a minute. Peter lived over 2,000 years ago. You haven't talked to Peter, have you? Some of you may have more as your dashboard, but that's another mission. But he's never talked to you, I hope. So how do you know what he believed in his heart? How do you know Peter believed when Jesus said, Come, how do you know Peter could walk, believed he could walk on water when that was over 2,000 years ago? How can you dare to sit here today in Seacock, Massachusetts and say, Oh, I come confident Peter believed he could walk on water. How can you say that? Because he got out of the boat, that's right. It was something he did 
that showed you what he believed, what was in his heart. By the way, there were 11 others that heard the same words. And they chose to stay in the boat because they didn't believe. So we know what Peter believed by what he did. And when he acted on what he did, what happened? He walked on the water. Actually, I want to correct that. Peter didn't walk on the water because you can't walk on water. He walked on the word come. Because if you think you can walk on water, there's a pond out back here. <clears throat> we'll go on down and we'll end up having a baptism service instead of a water walking service. <clears throat> the word of God said come and Peter believed it and that believing became matured when he acted on what he believed. He sat on the edge of that boat, put his feet over the side. I don't know what's going through his mind at the time. The boat's going up and down and up and down. It's a storm, remember? And at some point, Peter had to shove off from that boat and step out on what he believed. And when he did, he walked on what God said he could do. God said, you can walk on this water, because I've said, come. And Peter believed it and then acted on it. And as he acted on it, that faith matured into a reality in his life. Unfortunately, the story goes on, Peter got distracted. He stopped looking at the word, come. He stopped looking at Jesus and he began to look at the wind of the waves because the wind and the waves told him, you can't do this. Isn't that like life? You know, you're already doing it and the, and the, and the devil tells you you can't. You can't be out here. You're just a person. You can't do anything for God. Do you know what you're like? But what did God say? You can't love people. You know your background. But God says, I love you. My love for you is in you. And as you begin to give away by faith, not how you feel, what's in you gets activated and it begins to become a reality that you experience as you give it away. And often you have to choose to do something that you don't feel to do because it's simply an act of your will. It's a choice to live, it's a choice to give it. Let's go on down because there's another little story that's tucked in here that I don't hear often, very often. Down in verse 34. When he crossed over and came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding reason, region and brought to him all who were sick. And they begged him, look at this carefully, verse 36, they begged him that my, they might only touch the hem of his garment. They're believing, if we just touch the hem of his garment, we're going to be whole. If we just touch... They believe that, or they wouldn't have called people together to do that. They believe that if we just touch the hem of his garment, we'll be made whole. They believe that. But look at the rest of that verse. But as many as, that implies they didn't all do it. It's as many as touched it were made perfectly well. It's the, they believed if they touched it, but it's only those that acted on it where that faith became a reality and they were able to receive. So there must have been some that believed that we touched the hem of his garment, but we don't want to bother the master. It's too dirty to get down there. Uh, we, we believe that if you touch the hem of the garment that we can get well. I mean, wasn't there a woman that had an issue of blood and she did it? We heard her story. So we believe that if we touch the hem of his garment, there was even a teaching among rabbis before that that there was a healing quality in the, in the hem of rabbis' garments, in the tassels that were on there. So there was even some tradition that would back that up. So they believe that, but, but it's, it's too dirty. Uh, you know, we don't want to stand out in the crowd. Oh, there's a risk. What if we don't get it? We'll be disappointed. They didn't, and yet they believed. The believing became matured. It blossomed. It broke forth in its effect. It produced the results only as they acted on what they believed. And I've gone through this exercise of faith. I know that may help some of you just in faith, but that same principle applies to everything of God. We're talking about believing the love that God has for us. Believing that God so loved me and so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son. Believing that behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. And it doesn't appear what we will be but we know that when He appears we don't what we shall be but we know when He appears we shall be like Him. We're children of God now it says. Wow. 
We can believe all that in our heart and yet we, we, we get into situations in life and we hold it back because we're afraid I don't believe it enough. I got to get it believed up to a certain level before I can begin to give it. Now start giving what you believe already and watch it begin to release that love that's in you. Begin to love somebody that looks unlovable and let the Spirit of God prompt you but be willing to step out so we've got to receive before we can give and receiving involves meditating it involves praying and asking for it but then we can't just sit back and wait till we're so welled up and overflowing with the love of God we just float around and bless everybody no you've got to stir up what's in you and begin to give what's in you and what you'll find is that we'll begin to release greater amounts of that love for other people and as it's released for other people you'll begin to experience more of it and it starts to flow because once you start tasting this it starts to flow going. Now understand the enemy will oppose you. He will oppose you. You may find opportunities to get in strife with people. You might find your mother-in-law shows up at your doorstep and you know whatever the situation is. But every, listen carefully, I said that, not to be joking, every challenge that Satan may come to you to challenge it is an opportunity to walk in love. Every effort that Satan could throw at you to try to trip you up because you're going to determine to walk in love, every effort of strife that might suddenly come into your home is now an opportunity to walk in love. God takes Satan's weapons and turns them into his opportunities to train us and to equip us and to strengthen us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your wonderful grace and goodness in our lives. We thank you today, Father, for the love that you have proven and demonstrated towards us in the while we were yet your enemies, rebellious against you, doing our own thing, wanting our own way, while we were yet rebellious against you and enemies against you, you gave your son's life in our place to pay for our sins. And Father, by your grace, you've opened our eyes enough to see that we need that grace in our lives. You've opened our eyes enough to see that we need Christ in our life, that we can't do this ourselves. And now we ask you, Lord, as we prepare, want to be prepared to go and share this gospel, that you open the eyes of our understanding that we would truly see the breadth and length and height and depth and the extent of the love that you have for us through Christ Jesus. And Father, and in this week that lies ahead, as opportunities come across our path to not just feel that love but to give that love away, Father, would you bring back to our remembrance what we've seen today in our hearts? And would you give us the boldness to step out, even in awkward situations where our mind may tell you, oh, it's stupid, it's foolish to love that way or to love that person. Lord, may your spirit rise in us with that little prompting that we may remember, I'm going to step out anyway. And as we step out, Lord, we know you are faithful to come along behind us and through us and that we may then give that love away And as we give it away, it will grow in us. And we thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.